The government has announced that millions of dollars are to go towards treating prisoners' drug addictions. Insight explores whether it's time for the government to stop jailing cannabis users in the first place. The public debate over cannabis has been dominated by the views of two extremes: those who want full legalisation of the drug, regulated by the government, and taxed. The idea of cannabis being something that can be taxed and can become part of supporting. The state, rather than a drain on the state, you know, a drain in terms of prisons, in terms of enforcement, and those who want the status quo retained. Things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, oppositional defiant disorder.、Uh, these students, if they're taking marijuana, it has very, very dangerous and often fatal effects. But in between are those arguing for decriminalisation. That would mean low-level cannabis possession, while still not legal, would not be punished by a prison sentence. Instead, offenders would be directed toward compulsory education or treatment. Decriminalisation is potentially a very good move because it means that some of the barriers that are in place about providing healthcare to people with Who use cannabis will go. According to the United Nations, the rate of cannabis use in this country is somewhere between 13 and 15 percent, coming behind only Sierra Leone, Zambia, Ghana, Micronesia, and Papua New Guinea. Half of all New Zealand adults have used it at some time. Does that mean attempts to control the drug have failed? And if so, what can replace them? I'm Penny Mackay, and this insight explores whether it's time to re-examine the nearly 40-year-old law against cannabis. It's a good vibe. It makes people calm and relaxed and happy.、Um, it's a good. Three weeks you know, ago was J Day, J for Joint. The smokers have gathered in Wellington's Frank Kitts Park to support the National Organisation for the Reform of Marijuana Law, or Normal. They're discussing cannabis law and extolling the virtues of the drug. It is a lot better than alcohol.、Um, the side effects make you hungry and laugh a lot and just relax. You don't bother anyone. You can put it on a regulated market so that they have more control over it, rather than letting the gangs and that be involved with it. Got a, a well-paying job. I've got a good life, and I'm quite happy smoking every now and then. Aside from the fact that it is illegal and it makes me quite nervous. Usually, I can get it in about five minutes. Just got to make one text. If you compare it to things that are advocated at the moment, such as alcohol and cigarettes, it's really, really not that bad for you at all. But is it really that benign? At Wellington Hospital, specialist Paul Quigley sets out the numbers for visits to the emergency department because of cannabis. The number is utterly negligible.、Um, it's very rare to get a primary presentation of someone with a directly cannabis-related problem. It just doesn't happen. We see more presentations,、uh, relatively speaking, from some of the side effects of criminalising the drug. So we see the the violence that goes when trying to, you know, get your tinnies and perhaps not being able to pay up or.、Um, You know, involved with theft and crime,、uh, and some of the social deprivation that goes on as well because of the elevated prices. Kilda, you've reached Care NZ. For the community clinic, the book or change. In- Care NZ provides addiction treatment to about five and a half thousand people a year, including prisoners. Its chief executive, Tim Harding, says the dependence that heavy users of cannabis can develop often becomes apparent only when they try to give up. 
People go through the first week thinking this is no big deal, it's a piece of cake. By the second week where, the, where, the, where they've been used to the sedative in their system, the sedative effect of it in their system, by the second week they're clutching their, you know, their seat and they're, they're you know, bouncing off the walls and they're not enjoying themselves at all. And it's a very psychological thing, it's, uh, uh, but it has physical aspects as well. They're agitated, they, uh, th- th- there's huge craving. Um, so, you know, people who say there isn't withdrawal to cannabis, well, they obviously haven't worked in the, in the services that I've worked in. Tim Harding says CareNZ school programs indicate that cannabis is the drug of choice of 64% of those 15-year-olds and younger that have a substance dependency. That reduces to just 12% of clients, 51 to 60, but he says that doesn't mean cannabis use is simply a rite of passage. Many of them end up giving it up, but the kind of damage that they may have done is they may have completely uh, disengaged with education, uh, they may be suffering mental health problems, they uh, uh, certainly can, can end up with additional health issues. Um, I think that we, we mustn't underestimate the impact cannabis has on people, particularly when they're growing up. Research from the University of Otago longitudinal study of more than a thousand New Zealanders born in Christchurch in 1977 indicates that regular heavy cannabis use is associated with a significantly increased risk of psychosis or schizophrenia. Adding weight to those findings, a leading British professor of psychiatry, Robin Murray, says about a quarter of the population has a gene that makes them prone to psychosis if they regularly use cannabis in adolescence. He says that New Zealand's rate of cannabis-related schizophrenia is about 8%. But although devastating to the individual and their family, an addiction psychiatrist with Wellington's Community and Alcohol Drug Service, Dr Jeremy McMinn, believes the incidence of cannabis-related psychosis should be kept in context. We probably see the number of cannabis users in our service which is relevant which is linked to the amount of harm that the drug causes so we see very few alcohol is 80% of our workload compared with its legal cousins alcohol and nicotine cannabis is considered by many less dangerous in the physical and social harm it causes as wellington hospital emergency specialist paul quigley explains Emergency departments are full of people um, suffering from the, the effects of the two legal drugs in New Zealand. So if you look at all our acute presentations with the harms associated with alcohol, we actually think the number's about 500 to 1, if you take injuries into account. So Sorry, 500? Alcohol presentations for any one other drug-related presentation, whether that be opiates or benzos or any other street drug. But then don't forget nicotine. I mean, all the other presentations that we get with heart disease, um, lung disease, vascular disease, the cancers. Although Mr Quigley, a former toxicologist, says the very act of smoking cannabis is not without hazards. Cannabis smoking is not completely innocent in its own right for causing uh, mouth cancer, tongue cancer, lung cancer, emphysema. So... It's all, it's all very well to say, you know, at least I'm not smoking tobacco, but actually the smoke harm is just as bad. A leading British study in 2010 concluded there was no logic to official drug classifications which purport to rank them according to the harm they cause. The study, based on the observations of two independent groups of experts who looked at personal and social harms, found alcohol to be overall the most dangerous drug ahead of substances like heroin and methamphetamine. Nicotine was sixth most harmful and cannabis eighth.
So why are alcohol and nicotine legal and cannabis not? The head of Victoria University's Institute of Criminology, Associate Professor Julian Buchanan, says drug laws of Western countries are based on the United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, 1961. The UN Treaty is largely informed by people who were using alcohol and tobacco, and certainly tobacco at the time was highly promoted, and they just did not perceive them to be substances. And the people using opium or the people using cannabis were largely Asian people or they were largely people from a black African background, and they were perceived to be a threat. So I think it's an enmeshment of uh, discrimination as well as ignorance at the time. And Dr Buchanan believes the inertia of successive governments to remediate that is largely due to politicians wanting to be seen as tough on drugs. Basically sort of like a punitive populism. So drugs becomes an enemy within that we have to fear. And I think it is that simple. It's a major vote winner. Someone caught by the police with a small amount of cannabis can be sentenced to two years in jail. Larger amounts, eight years. But as the National Crime Manager, Detective Superintendent Rod Drew explains, between being caught and possible imprisonment stands the judgment of the individual police officer. Police discretion is one of the cornerstones of policing in New Zealand and, and very important. So what we focus on is not the prosecution process but the outcome for the individual and for society. So there is a range of uh, options uh, from street warning to pre-charge warnings to diversion to arrest and prosecution. They are used according to the circumstances and the gravity of the offence. A Massey University study released in April found that arrests for cannabis possession have halved since 1991. But Mr Drew rejects any suggestion that figure indicates a move towards informal decriminalisation. He points to an increase in the number of arrests for cannabis possession and cultivation between 2008 and 2010. The vast majority of those arrests ended in prosecution. Rod Drew says the cannabis trade is not one to be dismissed. We recognise very strongly that cannabis use is an issue in New Zealand. We have very high cannabis use in New Zealand. And we also know that there are very strong links with organised crime, with cannabis and other drugs. We have concerns in regard to burglaries and crimes. There are lots of where there's a cannabis involvement. And also, of course, we have some uh, real concern in relation to drug dealing houses or tinny houses where we often find children amongst them, and this is, these are very unhealthy environments for them to be in. While the police line is, we're not going easy on apprehensions, there is evidence of flexibility in the courts. A Golden Bay woman was recently discharged without conviction for growing cannabis to relieve her amputee husband's pain. The defence lawyer, law lecturer and leader of Aotearoa Legalised Cannabis Party, Michael Appleby, says that case is an example of judges taking more personal factors into account. I think that the judge acknowledged there uh, that, uh, in fact, you know, the consequences of a conviction would be out of all proportion to the gravity of the offence, and really all he was doing was just heeding what the High Court has stated in Jackson's case, a Christchurch case, that uh, when people do use cannabis for medicinal purposes, then the sin, as it were, uh, is much less serious. Michael Appleby believes the widespread experience of using the drug is also having an effect on judgments.
I've been teaching law for the last 40 years, and I know for a fact that, you know, there are MPs who have smoked cannabis, there are judges who have smoked cannabis, there are Crown prosecutors who have smoked cannabis, there are Queen's counsel who have smoked cannabis, but of course they don't get caught because it's done very discreetly. If there is any official loosening of cannabis law, it will perhaps come first in the medical area. Medicinal cannabis is in fact available in New Zealand under the brand name Sativex. But for any use other than to reduce spasms in multiple sclerosis, doctors must complete a great deal of paperwork, get approval from the health minister to prescribe it and complete follow-up observations. For the patient, it costs about $1,000 for a month's supply. This is part of my therapy, is having chickens. And, and we get quite a few eggs off them and we sort of give them to the my kids and the neighbours and everybody like that. For that reason, the advocacy organisation Green Cross wants a regime similar to that in 16 US states where people can apply to possess or grow a limited number of plants for their own use. The head of Green Cross is Billy McKee, who's an amputee after being knocked down by a car in 1975. I had heaps and heaps of trouble with the prescription medication that I was getting from my doctors and it actually didn't work and it gave me a lot of really bad side effects that were unsustainable. I just couldn't carry on with them. So I started using cannabis and the cannabis worked really, really well. I could get a good night's sleep, I could wake up in the morning with a clear head and I've been using it as a poultice on my stump because I've got really bad nerve damage on my stump. If I do have to walk on it and then it's really sore, I used to just put some cannabis onto the stump where it was sore and within 20 minutes I could get to sleep, which is actually really quite fantastic. Billy McKee says mainly elderly women belong to Green Cross as they're fearful of going near the gangs that sell the drug. The former mechanical engineer says he's now facing four charges of supplying cannabis and one of growing it and goes to trial in August. Ben, who's an amputee as the result of a blood disorder, tells me he smokes cannabis because the opiates prescribed to him leave him groggy and a danger on the road. He's part of a basketball team made up of about 23 wheelchair users. There's all sorts of different stories from um, cystic fibrosis through to uh, ACC accidents, you know, traumas and whatnot. And guys are like me with medical conditions. And a whole lot smoke pot for sleep reasons and nerve reasons and, you know. Yeah. And how many of them were smokers before their accidents or their all, reasons? All bar three didn't smoke prior to the conditions. Ben says he fears ridicule and judgment being made to feel like a criminal and having to deal with the gangs. But the Associate Health Minister, Peter Dunn, has already ruled out even clinical tests on marijuana leaf, citing the availability of Sativex. The former undercover drugs officer and now defence lawyer, Tony Boucher, says a number of factors, such as prioritising methamphetamine over cannabis investigations, are having an effect on the way police respond to cannabis activity. He says this is further influenced by young officers seeing cannabis use in their families or even using it themselves. But he worries about the implications when an arrest is made, followed by a conviction. The lost opportunity for a lot of these young people who get drug convictions, and there is a huge economic 
argument there to be had that why um, impose a criminal conviction for drugs against somebody when all it's going to do is result in them really not taking the fullest part that they could possibly have taken without a conviction in the community, and that concerns me. Last year's Law Commission review of the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 said police discretion while offering the opportunity for a proportional response also allows for unfairness, discrimination and uncertainty. Michael Appleby finds convictions relying on judges' discretion also unsatisfactory. It should be in black and white because it depends on whether or not you're appearing uh, before a rural judge sometimes or before an urban judge and of course it depends on the age of the judges. We have increased the amount of money for handling the problem of dangerous drugs. It's 50 years since the United States President Richard Nixon declared war on drugs. This is one area where we cannot have budget cuts. But in 2012, is it still appropriate to be throwing so much money at trying to control cannabis use? The New Zealand economic research company, Burl, found police enforcement of cannabis activities cost $116 million in 2005-2006 and accounted for 334,000 policing hours. Law Commission findings that about a third of 18 to 24-year-olds are current cannabis users lend support to the view that prohibition has in fact failed. But does that justify freely launching a third drug after alcohol and nicotine onto the New Zealand community? What would happen to the rate of 19% of driver fatalities already linked to cannabis use? What about the incidence of psychosis and problems with dependence? The Associate Minister for Health, Peter Dunn, says changing the legal status of cannabis would mirror what is happening now with alcohol. Why open Pandora's box? Why actually take the risk? There are uh, problems associated with our current control strategies. I freely concede that. But I think they are minimal, if you like, compared to the bigger problems that you would have if you simply said, well, the way to control this problem is to effectively have no control. Figures from the University of Auckland indicate cannabis use by secondary school students is dropping from 39% in 2001 to 27% in 2007. Even so, the president of the Secondary Principals Association, Patrick Walsh, says prohibition should remain. Even decriminalisation would send the wrong message. In the mind of a teenager, if you decriminalise it, you're simply sanctioning the use of marijuana and saying it's morally and legally acceptable for them to use it. In the same way that we started out with having chronic, which was legal, there was a huge uptake by teenagers, and we had disastrous consequences as a result. And he says what can happen to students who regularly smoke cannabis is too serious to dismiss. They become aggressive, they have short-term memory loss. Uh, nurses and teachers report that students who use it on a regular basis are unmotivated, lacking in energy. Uh, sometimes poor judgment. These students also lose interest in sport and can become socially isolated. There are serious worries about the effect cannabis has in the workplace as well. Radio New Zealand News, it's nine o'clock. Balloonists say they'd welcome compulsory drug testing of pilots after a report found evidence of drug use in the pilot of the balloon that crashed near Carterton in January. It's not yet known if the pilot's drug use was a factor in the ballooning disaster that killed 11 people. But the chief executive of the privately owned New Zealand Drug Detection Agency, Kirk Hardy, 
says stoned employees have led to horrendous accident rates in some sectors. If you look at, say, food processing several years ago, where they had between 16 and 20 amputations a year, when we originally tested that industry, we had something like a 60% strike rate of people returning positive tests. So those people were basically told to clean up their act and get back into the workplace. And from that, we saw a huge result where, in fact, I think there was, if not none, possibly one or two amputations the following 12 months. And Kirk Hardy disagrees with the opinion that almost nobody turns up to emergency departments because of cannabis. He says often doctors will treat an injury but have no reason to test for drug use. The ED doesn't talk with the workplace and not all workplaces drug test. So someone who's going to have their finger reattached, they don't get drug tested as a matter of course at hospital. And if we do a drug test at hospital and we've done a number, the results actually don't go to the attending doctor. But an addiction psychiatrist with Wellington's Community Alcohol and Drug Service, Dr Tom Fluitt, says people should guard against overreacting to the potential pitfalls of changing the law. If we decriminalise, then there will be chaos, madness, everybody will become ill and there'll be more crime. And before we even start having the debate, we, we have to be clear that prohibition hasn't worked and the evidence is there. The Law Commission has um, given us that evidence and that has to be in agreement first because there will be a desire to return to pro prohibition um, based on the ignorance and fear that these debates um, tend to generate and it's mostly fear I think. What is the experience of other countries that have changed their laws? Many speak of the Portugal model, where in 2001 possession of all drugs was decriminalised, although supplying them remains an offence. The chief executive of the Drug Foundation, Ross Bell, explains. They didn't just decriminalise all drugs, although that was an important part. At the same time, they put in a system where, essentially it's a, an arrest referral scheme, so if the cops pick you up, you appear before some experts who assess you um, uh, and, and then if you are drug dependent you'll go to treatment. If you're not dependent there'll be some kind of civil sanction. At the same time as doing the law change, Portugal invested heavily into drug treatment services. So if prohibition was to be lifted in New Zealand, what would happen and what could replace it? In the Netherlands, decriminalisation 36 years ago of the possession of small amounts of cannabis gave rise to the coffee shop culture where people could smoke dope without fear of arrest. The defence lawyer, Tony Boucher, who's of Dutch descent, regularly visits the country. There is life after the legalisation of cannabis. You know, some of the concerns that people have about it certainly haven't been exhibited in the Dutch community. Uh, there's an observation being made at the moment, well, the Dutch are starting to close down their coffee shops. They're not closing them down at all. What the concern is is that Holland is becoming a drug tourist destination and they don't want that reputation, so they're going to basically create a new rule whereby the coffee shops are only allowed to serve cannabis to people who have a Dutch passport. A measured analysis from the University of New South Wales found that decriminalisation in Portugal, contrary to predictions, did not lead to major increases in drug use. There was a short-term increase in experimental use, but problematic drug use, drug-related harm and jail overcrowding all reduced. 
Wellington addiction psychiatrist Tom Fluitt says some form of loosening of the current law would actually make his practice and that of his colleague Jeremy McMinn easier. We'd be able to start treating patients with cannabis-type problems in the way that we can't treat them at the moment. Jeremy and I were talking earlier on about the difficulties um, engaging patients, especially young patients, in treatment because if you're participating in an illegal activity, you're unlikely to feel freed up to talk about it. Phil Saxby from Normal advocates for cannabis to be legalised and bought and sold in a regulated, taxable market. The idea of cannabis being something that can be taxed and can become part of supporting the state rather than a drain on the state, you know, a drain in terms of prisons, in terms of enforcement, in terms of you know, deaths and injuries and all that sort of thing with the prohibition. I'm not going to argue that taxing the system solves all the problems. If we tax cannabis, we'll still have drug issues in New Zealand, but instead of it all being a drain, at least there'll be some tax money coming back in. Phil Saxby says Normal also wants the possession of cannabis seen as a dependence issue and not a criminal one, one of the Law Commission's recommendations. And that's supported by many in the drug treatment, justice and health sectors. Karen Z's Tim Harding is one of them. Why not leave the legislation similar to what it is now, that we give a very strong and clear message that we think cannabis is destructive, however we can put in uh, mechanisms to ensure that people get sent towards health when caught with cannabis rather than sent towards justice. There is seldom a gain in putting someone into the justice system. However, there is some tremendous gain if you can put them in front of the right people to talk to them about that cannabis use. But what about the burden on an already overstretched health budget? The Drug Foundation's Ross Bell says the state could swap priorities. You put a system in place that moves people um, away from the, the very expensive criminal justice system uh, into the health system. Uh, for that to work, we are going to need uh, a lot of resources. You might have noticed I said the, the very expensive criminal justice system. Uh, I think if we are channeling fewer people through that system, it, it makes sense to shift that money, therefore, into, uh, into interventions that really work. The Associate Minister of Health, Peter Dunn, says in line with the government's official drugs policy of harm minimisation, $1.2 million is spent each year on drug education and health promotion. But as for moving it from criminal justice to health, Mr Dunn says the law is the law. There is also a regulatory side which the police enforce and that's a justice issue and that's consistent with what's in the Act at the moment and also our international obligations through the conventions that we're party to. But would law changes make any difference to actual consumption? The UK charitable think tank, the Transform Foundation, says policymakers have used prohibition as a smokescreen to avoid addressing the social and economic factors that lead to problem drug taking. The Drug Foundation's Ross Bell says the World Health Organization looked at the drug laws of different countries. They found that countries with tough drug law didn't necessarily have low drug use but there were countries that did have tough law, that did have low drug use. And so what they concluded was that your drug law, tough or soft, uh, has little influence over drug use per se, and there are these bigger social issues that do need to be looked at. Peter Dunn says the government will be re-examining New Zealand's 37-year-old drug laws this term. An obsolete Drug Addiction Act will be replaced and a permanent ban on synthetic cannabinoids, such as the substitute cannabis cigarette Chronic, put in place. 
But he insists, as does the Minister for Justice, Judith Collins, that cannabis law will remain untouched. That's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I'm Penny Mackay, and I researched, wrote, and presented this insight on the legal status of cannabis. The program was produced by Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Chris Adams.